welcome to the Bro Novo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Bro Novo Podcast. Thanks for being here. My guest this week is Patrick Rosevere. Those of you who know me personally will know that last year I had a plan cooked up to go teach English and play rugby in China. And Patrick is the guy who was going to facilitate all of that. So he is a New Zealander living and working in China. He founded two rugby clubs that bring over expatriate rugby players from all over the world. And these clubs compete in the local competitions, facilitate cross-cultural communication, and have a lot of fun while doing it and playing, of course, some very good rugby. So Patrick and I get into his personal journey from New Zealand to China, what keeps him there, what he loves about it, what he's learned about himself along the way, and the importance of creating a safe culture in any team, but especially in a sporting environment for men and women. So it was a really wonderful conversation. Big thank you to Patrick for coming on the program. And any ruggers out there who are up for an adventure, Go check out ChinaRugbyRecruitment.com. Please rate the show on Apple Podcasts, and we'll see you next Thursday on the Bro Nouveau Podcast. Okay, and we're recording. Patrick, what's up, man? Welcome to the Bro Nouveau Podcast. Hey, how's it going? Fantastic, man. I am uh, super stoked to be talking to you. So for everybody listening, uh, Patrick and I got connected via the wonderful world of rugby. Um about this time last year, I had I had grand plans to go teach English and play rugby in, in China. And uh, Patrick runs a club that brings over players from all over the world to play rugby in China and sets them up with a uh, job teaching. So yeah, that's how we that's how we connected. Yeah, that's right. We're still still uh, hoping to get you out for a uh, for a, at least a cameo <laughs> for our club at some point. So it'd be good to have you to come visit China at some point soon, Thomas. For sure. Yeah, that's on that'd be amazing. Um so I definitely want to dive into the the club and your life as an expat in China, but to kind of bring it back, uh you're a Wellingtonian, so that's a, a city in New Zealand. And for the Americans listening, you know, there might be not a lot of familiarity with uh with New Zealand. So if you could bring us back, what was you know, your upbringing like and and what is what is life like in in New Zealand? Uh well, it's yeah, it's quite different to my current life, so I've just just going forward a few years, I've been I've been in China for the last ten years, um, but I was born and raised in, in New Zealand, obviously. So I, as you as you rightly alluded to, I'm from Wellington. Um, so Wellington is the capital city of New Zealand. A lot of people think that the capital is Auckland. Um, I think it's just because it's a it's a, it's a smaller city that no one's really heard of. Um, but it's it's a it's a nice city in the, in the middle of New Zealand, uh, right next to the the ocean. So I grew up right next to the water. Can walk out of my house down down to my back garden and walk into the nice. to the ocean um so it's a very special place in terms of the nature there and um you know grew up in the outdoors there's not a lot else to do in, in new zealand so i grew up surfing um before school you know during high school and whatnot just just go surf whenever there was surf um and then be late to late to classes if there was good surf so i just skipped the first class or two if there was there were good waves happening, <laughs> uh, and my teachers would forgive me, and my parents would give me um, absent absent notes if I asked for them. Um, so it was a pretty pretty loose place to grow up, um, and it was, it was pretty free. And um, yeah, we just do a lot of like fishing, surfing, uh, and we love rugby. 
Uh, so we play a lot of sport, including rugby, uh, which is the main the main sport we play in New Zealand. So yeah, very uh, very nice upbringing. I thought, and then um, you know, once you finish university, a lot of New Zealanders once you get to the you know into your early twenties, a lot of New Zealanders want to leave to go and have an adventure abroad because New Zealand is very isolated and very small, and we don't quite have the human energy that other places do, such as big cities in the US or in the UK or Australia. Um, so yeah, I ended up in, in China, uh, which is a totally different lifestyle to New Zealand, and I do miss all those things about the nature, etc. Uh, but it's also a, a very um, unique and interesting sort of challenge for a New Zealander to come to China. Uh, it's it's pretty pretty stimulating place to be. The waves in Wellington, what are they like? Is it a beach breaks? Are they quite heavy? How's the what are the conditions like surfing there? Uh, Wellington's got it's pretty much got three coasts available to it so it's got two coasts which are within the sort of 15 20 minute drive um so the west west coast and the south coast with completely different oceans um because it's at the in, in the corner of the country um so oh, wow so you've got the tasman sea uh, which brings in the the west swell and then you've got the um you know the, the pacific ocean in the south which just goes down into antarctica essentially so you get these huge south swells um which come up into to wellington between sort of March and July every year, um, like up to, you know, 10, 12 meters swells. They're just absolutely huge, ginormous swells. Um, so all, all, this, all the fantastic surf you see in Fiji, for example, all those, you know, pristine reef breaks with massive waves, they're coming from New Zealand. So those waves are coming from down there. Um, so we get the, the raw end of those swells. Um, so, it's, yeah, there's good. There's, there's constantly surf. Uh, it's there's a mixture of different types of breaks, mostly beach breaks around, like in the immediate proximity to where I live. Um, but if you go two hours by car, there's um, there's a fantastic east coast of next to Wellington, which is no people at all. It's totally isolated, um, but there are lots of really good point breaks and reef breaks there. It's a bit more rugged, uh, so it's a lot better. Um, so I used to go, I used to go on a lot of like road trips since I was about sort of fifteen, sixteen. As soon as I got my driver's license. Uh, my friends and myself would would head east and uh, and go for it, but yeah, it's 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 good. That's it, so fun. Yeah, I think it's good fitness for rugby too. It's uh, a lot of rugby players in New Zealand surf. I used to see like uh, Rodney Soliallo is an ex All Blacks number eight. Uh, Manonu, I used to surf my local break. Oh, awesome. Yeah, that that both. What? Yeah, yeah. There's uh, they they. Oh, that's um, so cool. Tai Bay. It's uh, it's it's um, where they're from essentially. So it's just maybe ten minutes drive from my house, my parents' house. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's I think it's really good fitness. It's good recovery, and it's good to switch off and just turn your mind off and just think about what you're doing at the time. Totally. Yeah, I'm trying to get a surf on Wednesday. Yeah. So I think my my exclamation. So for the people who don't know, like. Those guys, especially Ma'anonu, are like the, it's like the equivalent of seeing like Brett Favre at your local supermarket or something, you know, and, and here in America, just, it's just like you don't see celebrities, I guess, as often is the way to put it. Um, that's, that's awesome, man. So, you know, you made the jump, you left home, and that's something I really admire because I think, you know, comfort zone is so enticing, right? Staying close to friends, family, what we know safety, you know, in the wider world is one of those things that I think is enticing for a lot of people, but it's really hard to commit oneself to doing the jump. So, you know, once you made it to China, you know, I think it was uh, Shanghai, right? The the first spot you went to? Correct. So what was it about that place, right? Like what, what was it that 
I guess two part question. What was it that kind of drove you and what do you think, you know, enabled you to make the jump? And then once you got there, what were the things about it that, you know, kept you? Well, I'm, I was doing a little bit of a side project on the side of work. So I, I studied law and I was working as a lawyer at the time in a, at an internship in Australia. Um, so just after I'd finished graduating. And I, um, I, I had a little side project. I was doing some, some manufacturing stuff and I was working with some manufacturing partners in, um, in, in China near Shanghai. So I went over there to meet them and I was just blown away by how, how you know, Shanghai and China was so different to what what I expected it to be. Um, so there was a huge international community. Uh, so Shanghai has about 250,000 expats there, foreigners there. So it's got a, a very, very large international community. And that does, and I'm not even counting the, you know, all the American Chinese, we call them ABCs, um, that are all the, all the Chinese who have come back from the UK, who have studied abroad, who are very internationally minded, who speak really good English. Um, so there's a very, very large international community in Shanghai, much larger than just the expat population. Um, so, so yeah, socially it's really interesting because you meet people from like Kazakhstan and Russia and all these countries that don't, you know, the people don't really make it down to New Zealand because it's a little bit too far away. Uh, Brazil is another one, like Latin America. Um, so I, I kind of I liken it to it's like the I wouldn't say it's like New York just yet, but it's you know it's it's a it's a really uh, it's a big melting pot and a very interesting place to to turn up to. And also for work, for business, it's very interesting too because the um, the economy is changing very, very quickly. Um, so, yeah, just it pulled me in. Like it's the, the energy. I mean, the Shanghai has got almost 30 million people. New Zealand's got 5 million people. And so it's six times the, the size <laughs> of my country in one city. Uh, so it's it's just yeah. so different. It's it's a, it's such a ch- – I guess it's way out of your comfort zone. It's a challenge, but it's very alluring as well. Um, so I think just the pull of something new. Um, the other thing to to mention is it's not so difficult for a New Zealander to get out of their comfort zone because, you know, once you turn, once you finish university or you know you, in your mid twenties, every week you've got some friends going away party and they go to London or they go to New York or they go to Sydney. Um, so it, it's not it's not so hard to to want to go somewhere abroad for us. So New Zealand has 15% of our population living overseas, um, which is the second highest percentage in the world just behind Ireland, which is 17%. Mm. Uh, so Ireland and New Zealand have got this you know, real tradition of just getting, getting out of there. Uh, so it's a huge percentage of our population is abroad at any one time. That's awesome, man. Yeah, I've definitely seen that in the, in the Bay Area because I worked in the construction industry and it's like – Irish, everybody. Yeah. That's awesome, man. All right. So 30 million people. I know you boys got into some fun. So are there any, uh, any fun stories you can share about, um, times with your friends or kind of like, uh, shenanigans you guys and gals get into over there? <laughs> uh, <laughs> try to think for what I will be appropriate to, to say. Um, I mean, I can't think of anything specific off the top of my head right now, but we, we had a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, so the, in China, one of the things that blew me away is, you know, like going out, going out for a few drinks with your friends. Uh, it's quite expensive in, in New Zealand or in Australia. Um, and in China, you get this stuff called baijiu. So there's like bottles of uh, local fire water, essentially. Um, so it's usually, <laughs> it's, it's not even a specific alcohol, really. It's, it's usually referred to as rice wine, but it's made with whatever, mm. whatever people can get their hands on at the time. And um, it's it's about you can buy it for like 
you know, 80 cents US a, bo- a bottle of this absolutely deadly firewater that's, you know, 50, 60% alcohol. Um, oh, so I, I, I recall my, my first days in Shanghai, a friend, few friends of myself would like get this from the local convenience store. And, and I, you know, it's just, it's just insane. Uh, yeah, just the difference in sort of lifestyle levels you can achieve in a, in a different country like that. Um, but we're, we're totally. yeah, having a lot of fun. Um, the, yeah, the, the nightlife is really, really good in Shanghai. Um, so we just go out a lot, uh, particularly on the weekends. And yeah, let me think of let me think of some specific yeah. things that are appropriate for the. No, yeah, no, no. Uh, I just, I just, no worries. I just can only imagine. Yeah, it must be so much fun, man. And and so, I guess when was the transition? Because if I have it right, you're living in Beijing now. Ah, uh, correct. Yeah, so I'm living in Beijing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do spend a, quite a bit of time in Shenzhen as well. So um, I do a lot of rugby stuff down in Shenzhen. I've just recently started a, a new rugby club down there. I started the uh, Beijing Rugby Club about five years ago, Beijing Ducks. And I've just recently started a new rugby club with a couple of friends in Shenzhen, which is bordering Hong Kong. Uh, so that, that team will play in the Hong Kong competition once travel's available again. Um, so I spend a lot of time jumping back and forth for personal project stuff. Awesome, man. And so the rugby, I'm a, I am love rugby, man. And I, the listeners will have heard a good bit about it. But for me, it's something that it's empowering and humbling at the same time, right? Because you get to go out and do things that you never knew were possible with your body and with your push through your mind. But at the same time, there's always someone, you know, bigger, better, faster, stronger, and it's always humbling, right? And there's the teamwork side of it and the memories you make with people. You get to travel and make these awesome experiences. So I think I understand, you know, why you would want to create that in, you know, in your new home. But what was that process like? You know, how was it hard to kind of get, get it organized and, and get it going? Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, first, first and foremost, I had no idea there was a rugby in China. So when I came to China... I was just coming here for, for life and for work, and I wanted to learn Chinese. And then I, I heard from a friend that there was a, a team in Shanghai, so I got involved and, you know, really enjoyed it, having, like, that sort of taste of home when you're when you're quite far away from it. Uh, and then, yeah, I moved to, moved to Beijing eventually and was, was involved in rugby, and it was a little bit lackluster. So New Zealand, it's a mainstream sport. We have, you know, hundreds of clubs, and there's a lot of stuff going on. There's different divisions. There are, you know, thousands of teams and they're all reasonably close to each other in New Zealand. So you get lots of games. Uh, and in China, they're sort of sprinkled around the country and there, there aren't really too many teams. There isn't, there didn't feel like there's a critical mass. And it was just a little bit boring when I was, I was playing for a club, Beijing Devils, I was enjoying it for the, for, you know, the teammates and everything, but we didn't play. And I, I was asking, are there other teams we can play against? And people say, yeah, we've heard there's, there are a few Chinese teams and we don't know them. And, <laughs> Like, why don't you know them? I don't know. We just don't know them. And and so I thought this is this is a real opportunity to not only make you know our lives more interesting by having more rugby games, but also to pull them in and give them more rugby games to play too. And so I realized there's this you know there's this huge amount of rugby teams and in, in China local rugby teams uh, about you know over a hundred, and they were totally not connected to. Um, to each other or to the to the expat clubs, and so I, I formed a new club, uh, Beijing Ducks, um, and and pulled in a bunch of Chinese players that I'd I'd met over the the 
in the sort of recent months before I did that, um, because I was involved with the, the the Chinese language rugby World Cup commentary. Um, so I was involved with the commentary oh, team. Cool. So everyone was everyone was Chinese apart from a couple of us, and they're all really good rugby players. And so I realized I met all these people who are in town, Beijing, who are, who are great rugby players who are in their thirties, are still like in their prime for some of them, and they weren't playing anymore. And so I got a few of those guys involved, and uh, and and then from that we, you know, the, the competition immediately expanded because the Chinese teams were interested in getting involved now that some of their friends were playing for the for the Ducks, and yeah, it was just an, incredible. Like we had a, a a really positive experience with expanding the community and making it much more integrated and diverse, and and obviously involving locals, which is um, which is very special. That's awesome. So did you help get set up? like a national league or are those kind of disparate clubs all connected now? And there's a little, a little bit more kind of interplay. Yeah, there was, there was a, an existing national league called the all China cup, uh, which was just, I guess a little bit lackluster and a little bit boring because it just it only involved the expat clubs previously. And also it only involved really the same old sort of three or four clubs who were competitive. So, you know, the Shanghai silver dragons are really, really good. Beijing Devils uh, are very competitive. Guangzhou Rams, um, Shenzhen Dragons. Um, so they, they were just constantly in the semifinals and finals. There was no there was no look in for anyone else essentially. Right. So um, yeah, I think uh, bringing the Chinese teams in has has shaken things up. Uh, unfortunately, COVID sort of put a little bit of a, a pause button on our on our progression. Um, so I feel like we're going to have to sort of you know pick up where we left off. Uh, in a, in a year or so, hopefully, um, but we're we're we we're, we're still chugging through. Uh, but it's just it's really challenging now for for travel, including travel within China. A lot of a lot of employers are not allowing their employees to to travel around. So travel's been a little bit affected for mm-hmm. uh, the intercity games. Uh, but yeah, it's it's been great having local involvement. Uh, some of the local teams are, are fantastic. They're usually semi professional or professional teams that we're bringing in. Uh, so that the players are training rugby twice a day. Yeah, so they're very, very good. Uh, That's awesome, man. Uh, and I, I should know, like, it's it's a totally different system. So I, I know there are a lot of non-rugby players watching, but I think this is interesting for everyone. Um, so my cat's meowing in the background, so apologies for the noise. Uh, but we've got... <laughs> we've. We've we've got the, the the club stuff, which is you know opt in and you sign up, and it's just all amateurs. And then the the, the Chinese system, the Chinese sports system, is based on the, the old Soviet model. So it was adopted from the, the Soviet Union's model back in like the fifties and sixties uh, for, for you know developing you know Olympic prowess and you know international prowess worldwide. Um, so it's a very, very different system. So treat the, the way that that system treats the individual athletes is very different. So the, the athletes sort of come out of sports schools. Uh, so they go to sport, they go into a sports school when they're maybe 12 or 13 because they're not doing so well academically, but they're good athletes for the most part. Mm-hmm. And they focus on sport and they don't do a lot of academic stuff. Uh, so once they become, you know, 17, 18, they can get into provincial teams. And so they can get into you know, the Beijing provincial team or the you know, Shanghai or Guangdong, whatever. Uh, so they, through that, they can get a, a university degree and then they can also get a, um, a, a sort of sort of iron, iron bowl, iron rice bowl job at the end of it where they can maybe work for the government or something. So they have um, mm. all these people coming into the sports system and they, they just, they live 
at their training facility. And so they, they get housed and fed there and they train three times a day and they just rest on Sundays. And so it's just brutal sort of, I think North Korea's, yeah. I think North Korea adopted the same system. So I think they got a similar sort of system. So, so um, they, they live this totally different life where they, they don't get paid, they're professional, but they don't get paid a lot of money. They may get, maybe get, you know, six, 700 US dollars a month, which they probably save for the most part because they're getting uh, accommodation and, and food provided, but they, they, yeah, they just train morning rugby training, midday weights training, afternoon more rugby training, and they just live in this bubble of of just training, 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 training. So I think they're really happy to come out and play against us, um, but they're very good. I mean, their lifestyles are so different to compare with a professional athlete in the in the US or in New Zealand. Yeah. So these are the big four clubs you mentioned that are historically dominant. Uh, no, those those clubs are expat clubs, and so those clubs are just okay. they've been involved from the, the get go. So what I'm talking about now is the Chinese teams. So the 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 local okay, the gotcha. local Chinese teams. Uh, so the provincial the provincial teams or the university teams. So that matter too. And so there are uh, there there are dozens of them, and they just live this this alternative existence that <laughs> that's just it's so really really. Odd. Where are these like? Yeah, where are these like Terminator rugby teams from China? Then are they not? Are they playing sevens? I've never seen them. Yeah, you know, do I they mean, play like the SE, the C? Yeah, yeah, their ladies. <laughs> I mean, their women's team had some recent success at the the Olympics. So they were in Tokyo Olympics nice. last year, and they they placed seventh, I believe, which is pretty good. So they've come out of obscurity. Yeah. They've come out of total obscurity to be similar from the world, and uh, they had a pretty competitive match against the the US, I think. To at some, I think it was in the, the quarterfinals. They lost it, but they're they really good. So, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, the, the guys' team just missed out on qualification for the for the Tokyo, and they would have gone to a ripper charge to have a chance of qualifying, but COVID cancelled the ripper charge tournament at the time. Um, but that, that's sort of there or thereabouts for Olympic qualification for for sevens. Um, but yeah, they're all they're all sevens teams, but we get them out to play fifteens against us usually. Uh, because they're nice. far too good at sevens, we can't we can't match it with them. They're too yeah. too fit, too fast. Well, yeah, it's kind of the equivalent as when like so. My team I play on now is we have a mix of people, but it's you know a lot of like San Francisco like techies, you know, computer nerds and stuff. And then we run out against like these like military teams, you know. <laughs> you can imagine how that goes, <laughs> man. Sure, that's awesome. Yeah. What yeah, what a what a that doesn't sound like a good life though. I mean, from a right, uh, like, it's, it's not. Yeah, no. I it's, yeah. It's, it's not at all. I, I think um, I think it's a it's a really. I think that would be the first people to admit this as well. But it, it's it's a I don't I don't find it to be a very positive system for sports. So I, I compare my upbringing and my, the the sports environments that I've enjoyed growing up, or even now in the club system in China, and it's really positive. And I think that they, the way that they uh, do this professional sport in China, I think knocks a lot of the positives out of the sport um, for their people and for their society as a whole. And I think it doesn't necessarily lead to the best results for performance. And so these teams are just training, training, training in, a, in an isolated bubble. They don't play against each other really very often at all. So they maybe play one or two fixtures per year. And so the the game experience is is very very low. And so that's for me that's the number one reason for why china underperforms in, in team sports 
there are a lot of theory, a lot of wacky theories going around, like oh, it's the one-child policy. And people aren't used to working with each other, <laughs> or, or 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 people don't have like a teamwork ethic, which is just not true. Like that's that's not true at all. Right. Um, the 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 fact is that all of these professional sports teams are not playing games, and so when they line up in basketball against a a US team or or rugby against a, a Japanese team or whatever, the the other play, the the opposition have had like, you know hundreds of times more games than than they have and so of course they're not going to have the same instincts in the game and they're not going to be able to deal with the mm-hmm. pressures of a game because i mean team sports particularly rugby there are a lot of variables um not to mention like the the intensity and violence factor in a game um, which which are hard to manage if you're not used to it um so totally yeah so i mean what works for like archery and shooting and and you know for um for individual sports uh, but not like big complex ones with a lot, lot of people. But yeah, it's, it's it's not positive for the for the people. They get really burnt out. They get injured often. And they don't have a lot of other options. Um, so they don't. It's not easy for them to sort of, you know, um, segue out of that and, and go into something else necessarily. So so um, I, I mean, I feel really strongly about trying to sort of turn that ship a little bit and trying to, I mean, pulling these teams into our, our competitions has been a really positive, real positive for the players and for the coaches. They enjoy it. Their teams get better too. Uh, so I, th- I think that they just need a, an alternative uh, way of of, of developing uh, their rugby teams. Um, so I'm tr- I'm, tr- I'm trying my best to sort of slowly turn that turn that around. I think they're, to- they're totally willing to embrace a different you know a different system of of um, of training and lifestyle and, and sport and everything. That's fascinating, man. So you, yeah, you alluded there that it was the Soviet era kind of mindset um and are there other kind of areas of life where those philosophies or the kind of the legacy kind of lives on in chinese life because and it's not a loaded question you know i think like i've heard you speak previously too about how you know the western portrayal and perception of of life in china you know could could be quite different from the reality you know so you kind of uh you answered already if one of this but one of the things i wanted to ask you was around you know what are, what's one thing that western outlets have right about china you know and, and and the lifestyle and then what are some things that are quite different or that you think there's a, a misperception because after living there for 10 years and being from new zealand you know you're probably really qualified to to speak on that yeah um I'll wind it back quickly so i just the, the the initial part of your question was about you know different parts of china which maybe would seem like the old Soviet Union. Um, so I think that the sport, mm-hmm. this you know, the sports system is a is a relic of of that time. Um, so it's a government led system. So that's very important to to distinguish. So the sport has been like a government led thing, and and continues to be uh, for, for for you know for mainstream competitive Chinese sport. And so that's why it's sort of kept that system. You got these once you get it once you get a system stuck in concrete like that. Um, back in the sixties and whatnot, there's there's money being injected into it, and then there's commer- there's in, there's personal interests uh, that people have to keep that system going because they're personally benefiting from it, or maybe some groups of people are benefiting from it. Um, and and also, it's you know, it's I think it's working at the Olympics level, for example, like the medal count for China is fantastic. Um, so I think there's some uh, it's it's difficult. It's a big slow moving ship, and it's hard to change the the policy, but it's it's a government run thing, uh, but sports very different to, to everyday life and so i don't i guess in other parts of 
government, there would be some some Soviet Union things kind of kicking around there as well. Although I, I don't think as much as in sport, um, but I don't really have any interface with that personally, and so I don't really see it. Um, but sports me that I've been really exposed to, and I've, I'm, I'm intimately familiar with uh, the, the system and the lifestyles of these people, and so I know a bit more about it. Um, but in everyday life, it, it's nothing like that at all. So it's it's you know you couldn't be further from living in the USSR or North Korea or something. It's it's it, <laughs> you, you kind of just do what you want, um, you know, with obviously some some added restrictions to what you'd have in the West. But I feel extremely free in in China. I'm so I th- I think most people feel like that. Most most expats or Westerners we come to China, they're pleasantly surprised with how free they feel here, and they often would feel, uh, for some facets of life, they'll feel much more free than than they would in their own country. Um, obviously, they're not going to go and start some big protest down the road in uh, Tiananmen Square or something and um, kick up a, a fuss politically. Uh, but you know that's not really our battle. It's not really our battle to fight anyway. Uh, so we people don't really get too involved in politics here if you're not from China, uh, but but yeah, but generally in, in general life, you can kind of it just feels less restrictive compared with other places. Like in, you know, in Sydney, like all the all the bars close at two a.m. and they make you go home. Like it's a bit of a nanny state type situation. Uh, whereas here, you can you know you can stay on stay on drinking until six a.m. Proudly, and uh, you know, no, no one's going to stop you. <laughs> so there, I mean, there are a few things like that you can kind of do. You know, do, yeah, it's just kind of do what you want, and no one really, no one really looser, Yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah, and then do you think how much of that do you think is kind of a sense of personal freedom? You know, being being let go of someone's old identity or no one knows them. You know what I mean? Is, do you think that's a bit of it as well? As far as you know, a, an expat can be like a fresh slate in a new place, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess that would definitely add to the the, the feeling of freedom. Uh, but there are a lot of objectively fr- more free things for your, for your lifestyle here. So for, in terms of, um, you know, your living expenses are very, very low compared to your income if you're earning a good wage here uh, because living expenses are very, very low here. Uh, it's very, you know, different economy. Uh, and then, like, you know, a lot of the rules around, you know, for rugby, for example, we can just kind of, you know, we're not locked into, you know, this old established system. We can kind of just, we're just making it up. You know, we're just making up our own competitions and we've got a lot more of a say in what we're doing. Uh, yeah, I, I I just feel like it's 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 objectively more free here for for an expat. Um, but, yeah, you would also feel yeah. that, that clean slate effect. I've been here for 10 years, so I'm not sure if I have a clean slate here. I know a lot of people... Yeah, like a, like an old community. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome, man. All right, so I'm also going to, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the Chinese media, or actually before we were on record, but so you've also done some uh, translation work you mentioned, and, and you're a bit of a, a reality dating show star. So what's the, uh, what's the, what's the tea on that one? <laughs> yeah, well, at the, you know, at the time, I was, I think it was back in 2014, I was working for a New Zealand law firm and the, the boss was was Chinese New Zealand. And so we had a, we had a huge amount of um, Chinese clients. We're a China, China facing or Chinese people facing law firm. And my boss was like, oh, Patrick, your Chinese is getting pretty good. Uh, why don't you go on this TV show to do marketing for our law firm? And I thought, yeah, why not do it? Um, so at the time, so it's called um, 
I think it's called Fei Chang Ra in, in, in Chinese. I'm not sure what it's called in English. I think it's called The One or Take Me Out or something. Um, so it was the most watched TV show in the world. So at the time, I mean, it was the most watched TV show in China and then by default, the world because the population is so right. large. So there was a viewership of about 100 million people per week after this TV show. It's still pretty popular. It's still, oh, it's still going now, but it's, you know, I think it's, um, it was really in the prime of its popularity back then. Um, so, um, yeah, we went, went on the show, uh, <laughs> wasn't that into it, wasn't trying to find like a girlfriend on the show or anything, just went and had a bit of a laugh, a um, bit of a test of the Chinese. And uh, the director set me up with this, this uh, for, another foreign girl that was in the show from the Ukraine. She had excellent Chinese. Um, so we ended up like leaving the show together, uh, but it was kind of a little bit manipulated by the, the production team. <laughs> But uh, right, it was fun. Right. That was a fun experience. They kind of knew I was there. I think a lot of people are just there for a bit of a laugh. Um, some people actually sure. get married off that show, so I think some people are serious about it. But uh, I think half of them are just there to have a bit of a laugh. Yeah. So that means that you're at this point, your Chinese must be excellent, right? If if you're able to go on national TV. Yeah, I mean, it's come a long way since then as well. Um, so I speak Chinese every day, so I use it for work. Now I've studied it extensively, uh, but you, you can, you know, actually I, I realized that learning a language is not rocket science. Um, so if you, mm-hmm. you need a, you need roughly 1500 words of vocab to speak, you know, 90% of what everyone would say in any language, more or less. It differs from language to language, obviously, depending on the, uh, the sort of vocab they might use in any particular language. But generally speaking, if you know if the most commonly used 1500 words, you can kind of get by uh, and communicate anything you want to. Uh, you just can't talk about specific technical things, uh, which might be outside of your vocab range. And so, yeah, getting that 1,500 words probably took me about three months when I initially arrived in China, three to four months. And then also on top of that, if you can speak to someone in a language for about 150 hours, uh, then you're, you can be totally conversationally fluent. And so a lot of people don't realize that they think, oh, I can't learn a language. I don't have that language gift or whatever. If you know, if you learn those, you know, just wrote, learn those 1500 words and you sit down and do 150 hours of conversation with someone and the, and the language, not using English, you got to cut the English mm-hmm. out, then you float. Like almost some people will be, will be 20% faster at it. Some people will be 20% slower um, because I have better memories or worse memories or their pronunciation will have some, um, some more issues. Uh, but that's just that's how it works. And you talk to anyone who's done that sort of thing, and they all become fluent in, in Chinese, which is one of the harder languages to learn in the world, I guess. Uh, but it's not that difficult if you just stick to that. So I, I, I met a couple of people who, you know, said, "Don't be intimidated by this. Just just do this, and you'll achieve it." And so I learned Chinese when I first got to China, like within the first few months. Uh, and then from then, I just used it in work and in life, and it's, it's improved as I've gone. But I think, like, uh, yeah, a lot of people think that learning a different la- a, a foreign language is not possible for them. Uh, but it's just the most natural mm-hmm. human thing in the world to to learn another language. Um, the vast, well, a huge amount of the population of the world speak more than one language. It's a lot of uh, English-speaking Westerners uh, don't have to step out of their comfort zone with another language and so they they kind of think that they can't do it um so i I hope that more people will try and 
you know, pick up Spanish or Chinese or whatever it is and just give, give it a go. Hell yeah, man. I'm fired up about my Spanish now after hearing that. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, um, I, I had some, I had some friends who were going to Costa Rica and they're like, oh, Patrick, we're, we're going to Costa Rica. We want to learn Spanish. You know, um, how, how did you learn Chinese? Give us some advice. And I told them exactly what to do. And they, they became fluent in Spanish in like eight weeks. Like they were doing four hours of tutoring a, a day with a teacher who couldn't speak any English. And they just became like wow. obscenely fluent <laughs> in a couple of months because they did a bit of pre-work before they went. Um, Spanish is a, is a slightly easier one to get because you, you have a lot of common words with English as well. So it's easy to remember them because you have a point of reference. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's uh I can give you some 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 advice offline afterwards for Spanish. How, how good your Spanish? How, how's your Spanish going? My Spanish is uh, bollocks, to use a uh, Commonwealth term. But my German is pretty good. I did a a study abroad in Germany, and I, and I had a very similar experience. Um, I studied it for a while at school, so I had like a base. But I had this. I remember this very specific fear of when I first got there my like known universe of vocabulary was going to run out and I could say a few sentences to someone I was afraid it was, was going to fall off a cliff. And that happened a little bit, but I basically only spoke German when I was there and I only hung out with the other Americans who would speak German with me and I joined the local rugby team and yeah, I was only there for four months, but by the end I was, you know, super comfortable and could talk about normal stuff. There we go. Um, and I, I the schooling was all in German too. So yeah, I, yeah, it's, that's a great, you know, inspirational story you shared. And also I think that the cool thing is breaking it down into something tangible and, and, and doable, right? You know, if you, someone just does commits to learning even super small, 20 new words a week in the language and doing, you know, two hours of practice, break it up into 30 minute chunks. You can get there. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very it's very doable and it's really fun and I think it's it's uh, it's difficult at the start and just gets easier and easier and easier. It's like a, learning a new, a new language is like a snowball effect, um, so it's very very difficult in the the very beginning uh, because you're not used to the language system and your your brain just can't you can't get your head around it. Uh, but then you particularly for like Chinese characters, for example, you see you just this it makes no sense to you and you haven't seen them before. Um, but then you get familiar with them and you realize that there are patterns and it's, it's easy to remember them after that. So, um, oh, that's, that's good. Yeah. I, I think, uh, yeah, more, more, um, English speaking Westerners need to, need to get a bit of a crack and really back themselves and, and know that it's possible. Oh, totally dude. I mean, you meet a Dutch person, they speak like five languages, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, part of by necessity, but, but yeah, man, another thing too, I'm really curious to hear about is, you know, how did this whole experience change you as a person? Looking back on the person you were when you left, you know, the shores of home and now now where you are with your knowledge and your experiences, all the people you've met, mistakes made, joys, highs, lows, successes, failures. You know, what are, what are the things that changed in you after being, you know, abroad in China for, for the last decade? Um, I, I mean, I think it's, it's pretty cliche, but I think, you know, living abroad for a long time and learning a new language, playing rugby with people from around the world, you realize that people are not that different from from one another. So different, you know, people in China, when you first arrive, you think, oh, this is crazy. You know, everyone's really different. They're wearing different clothes, speaking different language. 
now I just feel like they're just normal people. Like I, I just, I don't, I don't see anything strange about them. Yeah. So I, uh, I think that's the biggest thing is like, you know, people aren't really that different. Um, you're playing rugby with people from all around the world. We had the Mongolian rugby team come and visit, visit us in Beijing just before COVID. So I invited them down on Facebook and they accepted surprisingly. <laughs> <this game. laughs> nice. Yeah. Those guys are rugged. Like, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're super rugged. Like, oh, I bet. Mongolia is about a, as far away from, western countries as you can get in terms of geography and also culturally and, <laughs> and everything and um, but they're just they're such lovely guys and they brought their ladies team down as well and they're such they're such nice people and yeah i think it's it's kind of heartwarming to realize that people are just very similar and you can get along with people from anywhere in the world um so that was a real positive um how else have i changed uh i, I guess i've probably changed in a lot of ways that i don't really know because uh, i think it's hard to observe these things over a over 10 years yeah uh but yeah i mean yeah i just i just really enjoy it here like i spend a lot of time in new zealand still i spend about two months there every year um particularly during the christmas time the summertime over there southern hemisphere and all and yeah it's uh i just love the balance of, of life i have china and new zealand it's that total total opposites from one another in many ways so it's interesting balance is key man that's wonderful yeah. So the the other kind of common theme that I work into every conversation I have is this whole bro nouveau concept, right? So it's this whole kind of acknowledgement, at least in the US and I think in other parts of the world too, about how, you know, traditional male conditioning can be quite tox- toxic and, you know, healthy outlets, true friendships, expressions of vulnerability and acknowledging that we're all human kind of need to be more common, right? So you know, as a, as a man too, and, and, you know, you're in a leadership position, right? You have these organizations you run, you're, I believe an entrepreneur as well. So have your own company that you do good work with. So, you know, when you think about this idea of, you know, evolved masculinity or kind of to put it really simply men being nicer to each other, you know, what, what do you, how, how would you kind of uh, put your spin on that? Is it something that you are kind of uh, inspired by or, or believe in or yeah. How, how have you, how have you approached this whole conversation in, in your personal life? Um, yeah. Masculinity. Uh, yes, I guess. Oh, I mean, in New Zealand, for example, when I was, when I was back then, I think like rugby clubs are a bit more old school, uh, but more, um, you know, they're more established <laughs> and they used to be purely male institutions. And so I think whenever you, you get into an institution which is just purely male, I think you that's when you get like the the most toxic environments so in terms of male, um, you know, ma- maybe toxic masculinity. Um, but I think that's I think that's probably changed in the in the last little while. But yeah, I remember just you know people would say you know maybe vulgar things about women or disrespectful things or whatever that's. Some old school notions, uh, and and over here in China, our rugby culture is very different because we are much more community based, and so we've got people from a lot of different cultures, and so people wouldn't really say or do some of the things they might do in other places. So my doorbell is just ringing. Um, so yeah, I mean, we don't have a huge issue with toxic masculinity in in rugby clubs in China. We always have a a ladies club or a ladies team involved in the club for the most part. Um, so we have a very integrated community. Um, so that sort of stuff just wouldn't fly. 
Um, so you have to be more respectful because people are in the room. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, effective. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's just I think it's like old school institutions that are just you know male male dominated. I assume the same thing happens if, if it's just females hanging out too. They probably become like different towards. We don't know what they're saying about us. Uh, but I think I think breaking down those institutions that don't need to be single gendered. I mean. You know, yeah. girls love playing rugby. Um, that, it's great. You know, it's great to have them involved. It's awesome watching totally. them, and having them part of our club. Um, so I think I think that's probably the best way to to break down these these things. I think when people when people spend a lot of time with when guys spend a lot of time with girls, I think they're m- much less likely to be disrespectful if they have meaningful relationships um, with girls. They're not going to you know, do or say weird things about them. Totally. I think it's a great point, man. I, I'm immediately thinking about my high school. Me too. It's like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, and I I love my high school, and I'm I definitely, you know, am involved with it and have have stayed involved as an alumni. But yeah, I just think it is so limiting, right? The like the the whole the whole concept around diversity is that differences in perspectives and life experiences and opinions benefit everyone because it creates a richer conversation and like you said kind of enforces empathy because you have to think about someone with a different identity and how they're going to feel about what you say or what someone says so yeah i just any any yeah i agree like and that's the whole debate too right like tradition and like it's always been this way but i don't know if, if i was running a a school i would never keep it only male it just seems kind of like shooting yourself in the foot you know yeah i went to an old boys school i think there i think there are some positives because you get you know really focused on on i think the sport i went to a very very strong traditional sporting school i'm um, one of the best rugby te- mm-hmm. rugby uh, rugby teams in the country in new zealand and like you know a lot of other sports too a lot of culture uh, one of the flight of the concords guys is from from my school uh, brett oh, nice. brett <laughs> yeah his, his mum was my sister's nice. ballet teacher um, so you've got to like, really, like, really strong. I don't know. People get really focused on, on the, you know, on like uh, extracurricular pursuits. I think at, at at the school, and so it'd be kind of it'd be hard to change it. Uh, although I'm sure that it could still happen if it was co-ed. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why it's really necessary. But I I really like my my high school, but I think it yeah having. I still had like, you know, female friends that I'd, I'd catch the train to school every day and I'd hang out with them. So I guess I had a, a different kind of experience. But for some, for a lot of people at that school, I guess they would have never interacted with females unless it was their mom or their sister or something. They wouldn't have had too much interaction with females outside of out of that. Yeah. yeah. And the teachers. I wish we had yeah. female teachers and stuff, which helps, I think. Totally. And because that's interesting. I think the thing that happens, yeah, is like, if you leave a bunch of boys in a, alone and they don't have, you know, women around to be role models, that's, that's when it can be a problem, right? Because if women to a, a boy are only the perception of how the media portrays women, well, then they're going to internalize this image that's distorted and disrespectful. And the other thing I think that's really essential is male role models who speak up for what's right and, you know, model <laughs> being a respectful, upstanding gentleman, right? And if you don't have that, 
if you have teachers who let stuff fly or make the jokes themselves, then it's like pretty understandable how, you know, it's the, it's the whole, you know, the nature versus nurture, right? Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I've, I've, I've been out of that environment for a long time, but I, I felt my high school was, was reasonably balanced. I think it wasn't too old school. It was pretty, pretty futuristic in terms of its, its values. And I think we embraced a lot of different types of people, um, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah, it's, uh, I think rugby clubs are probably the worst. I mean, rugby, rugby clubs have been, have been much worse than, than my high school was. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, we, we, I mean, we address that. We, we don't have that issue in the rugby club set, as I mentioned. We just have we have ladies' teams, we have ladies' players. Mm-hmm. Uh, people get along really, really well. They enjoy each other's company, and and so we just don't have that culture, which is a real positive. I think that's great. That's wonderful, man. Yeah, I assume it's the same in the so, US so you- as well, because a lot of there are a lot of uh, ladies, mm-hmm. a lot of like female participants in rugby in the US, a much higher percentage than in, in New Zealand, where we have like. 95 plus percent of rugby players are real male um so i know that the u.s interesting yeah i mean the u.s has got a i guess a stronger female participation in part because of the scholarship system because they have Mm -hmm. to give equal amount of scholarships to men and women and the football team is the men's football team is massive and so they end up having a lot of like uh female players on scholarship funding for various other sports yeah 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 so um it's great. Hmm. Totally. Yeah. Well, that's awesome, man. Hats off to you for creating a, a safe environment for everybody uh, at, at your club. You mentioned that your high school is excellent at rugby. So who are some of the, the All Blacks, the the New Zealand national team that have come out of there? Um, currently, <laughs> yeah, currently Dane Coles. So Dane Coles, is, uh, he's been the you know, hooker for, for the All Blacks for a long time. So he was a year above me at school. We actually poached him from a school down the road. Uh, so we poached him from a smaller high school where he was playing like second or third division rugby. So he was he was happy to come and play some some higher standard rugby. Uh, but we poached him for the last nice. couple of years. Uh, we've had we've had about forty All Blacks from the school. Um, so I'm just I'm just trying to think of who the other outstanding yeah. ones who. Are just well, that, that's cool, there. man. Yeah, a few. Quite a few. Yeah, that's all right. I'm I'm the only one who will care who's listening. So <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep we'll keep it focused. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, cool. The last thing I want to ask you about is um, your career, and you know, you mentioned law, trained as a, as a lawyer, and you know, from what I saw on LinkedIn, you have your own company now where you do intellectual intellectual property protection for brands in China. So, I just want to ask a little bit about you know being an entrepreneur and starting your own business because that's I've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs on here, and I find that a really interesting path too because you have to be self reliant, you have to back yourself you know, the failure and success is all riding on you. So what about creating your own business attracted you? Uh, I really enjoy working for myself. So I really enjoy being more independent and being able to call the shots. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly now that, you know, I like to spend a lot of time in New Zealand and China. It's very difficult to do that with a regular job. Uh, and also if you're doing your own thing, you can choose what you do. Uh, so this, what I've chosen to do, intellectual property protection is, you know, anti-counterfeit work, um, helping foreign brands, foreign companies to protect their, their intellectual property here in China. It's really, really fun. Uh, so you're sort of, you know, chasing around the bad guy, like trying to find like the, 
you know, the fake, the fake makeup or whatever someone's making. And it's, you know, it's dangerous for the consumer. It's bad for the brand. It's, it's, um, it's really, really, really fun. And it's, it's a very difficult career to, to do working for someone else, actually. Like uh, there are very few avenues, you know, um, so, you know, maybe Adidas or Nike or Victoria's Secret or whatever has the odd job doing it, but it's hard to sort of get your foot in the door with it and get a start. Mm. Uh, so I've had a background doing a, doing this for a while through the New Zealand embassy where I used to work. I used to help a lot of New Zealand companies with this sort of these sort of issues. And I just really enjoyed it. So I just decided to make my own company and just just get into it. Uh, it's Yeah, it's, it's good. Um, just a lot of uh, American, Australian, New Zealand brands that I work with. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's fun. So it involves a lot of like, you know, research stuff and in-person investigation. So often I'll go and visit a factory or visit a supplier who's selling fake goods to investigate it, see what's going on. Um, I order a lot of stuff. Really? Yeah, I do a lot of like, you know, fake purchases online of, of stuff. Okay, yes. Yeah. So you pretend to be like a, a client and kind of get in there and have a look around? Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I try to do it mostly online because it's, it's it's a lot safer mm. and also a lot quicker and more easy. Um, but I, I, <laughs> right. I just yeah, I do a lot of like an online investigation into into these counterfeiters, and yeah, it's fun. You get to take them down at the end of the day. Um, people think that China doesn't have any intellectual property law, but it actually it does. Um, so you can enforce your your intellectual property rights there. Um, so yeah, I do a lot of uh, takedowns on the e-commerce platforms here, and um, working on some litigation to to sue for damages for some particularly large counterfeiters at the moment for an Australian client. Yeah. It's, it's good fun. That's so cool, man. Um, yeah, I've actually, so my, my company, we just launched a new product and there's actually a lot of, uh, competitors in Shenzhen producing it. So it kind of came full circle for me cause that's where I, I was going to go, you know, with the, uh, the rugby team. It's like, Oh, Shenzhen. That's funny. So, well, awesome, man. We're gonna we're gonna wrap things up. We'll move over to the three things game. So, this is a game where the person whose birthday is sooner goes first. So, what month is your your birthday in, Patrick? June. June. Okay. I don't have the cards on me because I'm traveling, but I have, I have some the photos of them here. So, I'll just pick a question for you. What are three things you have learned about respect? That's your question. Three things I've learned about respect. Um, hmm. uh, I mean, okay, so, I mean, respect, so, coming to a new country, you know, respecting the people, respecting the culture, I think um, you've got to put time and effort to sh- actually show proper respect rather than just words, um, so I think um, people care, feel really, really respected when you make an effort to you know, learn how to use chopsticks or learn a bit about their country or especially learn the language. So I think that gives them a real feeling of respect. Um, so I think going beyond just words uh, is probably the, the main thing for me. Um, also, on the rugby field, um, I think you, you know, you, you really respect your teammates when they put their body on the line and they, they commit themselves to the team and, and to you as a teammate. And so I think there's, there's also going beyond words and just, you know, really putting yourself on the line and, and, and doing actions for, for a cause or for a, a person or a group. Um, that's the, the best way to show respect. There's only two things. Do you need a third one? That's great, man. That's a wonderful answer. Thank you. <laughs> 
Okay. Um, I, my question is, what are three things that I've learned about commitment? All right. I think, I mean, one would be nothing, almost nothing good comes from things that don't require commitment, right? You know, sure that you can find examples, but I've, in my life, at least all the things that really have borne fruit, take time and effort with relationships, training, my body, my mind, my spirit working, you know, I work in sales and there's, there's no, there's no easy sale. You know, there's always freaking work that has to go in. And I think that's kind of cool because I think it like, I think it helps maybe biologically or how we evolved, you know, like having to work for a bit of a reward is, is really good. And I think that's a good thing to remember Two, I would say commitment. I don't know. Maybe it's two would be like, it's good to know when to alter or change a commitment and not kind of, uh, attach oneself to something that they don't need to anymore. Maybe it's this is a pride or like a sense of loyalty or something, but I don't know. It's the thing about boundaries, right? Like, if you made a commitment, but it's not good for you anymore, then it's okay to change it up, you know? And number three, yeah, commitment. I mean, this, this podcast is a big, a big effort of mine, you know, commitment wise, right? Like it's early days right now, but my plan is that, you know, next time Patrick, two, three years, when you come back on, it's going to be a, a ripping podcast, man, with, with uh, millions of followers. So that's the, that's the plan. <laughs> fantastic well good good luck good luck with that and i'm um, looking forward to seeing the progress yeah thanks man well thank you so much uh where can any of those ruggers out there who want to check out uh china rugby where, where can they go uh rugby any king rugby players can go to china rugby recruitment.com so china rugby recruitment.com and they can sign up for our opportunity to come to china through there oh yeah Well, thanks so much, man. Have a great rest of your day there. And uh, yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you.